And for 48 weeks, we've been walking through this story. And last week, Jesus' death. And now this week, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. That's what everything in the Old Testament has pointed forward to. And everything afterward has pointed back to everything in our lives. Now and in eternity to come, center around the death, burial, and resurrection of our Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at, but to remember how we got there, it's time for your motions, all right? Crack those knuckles. Here we go. We can show our fifth Sunday band how we got here with me. We've got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, silence, and Jesus. Part five is going to be concluded today, and then we'll have four more weeks as we look at the church, Acts, and Revelation, eternity to come, and then we'll move into a time uh, where we celebrate Jesus coming to flesh and blood as our born Savior. Uh, last, this last Tuesday, we got the first real snow of the year. Woo! All right, maybe not. It was another reason to celebrate that attached heated garage I was bragging about last week. I pulled out of the garage, I'm like, oh, there's snow. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, I love I love aspects aspects of the winter, right? And that first drive to church when it's snowing, I was blaring Winter Wonderland, right? To face unafraid. Uh, don't remember the rest. I'm driving slowly because the other traffic, they haven't got their snow tires on. There's a couple accidents, so that was good, but you know, traffic on K Beach was, uh, was crawling. I'm smiling as I'm shoveling off the deck that morning to face unafraid the plans that we made. And I'm, so I'm shoveling off the, the church deck, but that's, that's day one. But let's be real. Alaskan winters are long, and they're dark, and they're cold. And in January, when it's 20 below, and I'm shoveling off that front deck for the 27th time, and I'm face unafraid, the plans that we made. All of a sudden, that joy just sucked right out of me, right? And we know, and man, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, I know those of us that have what they call seasonal affective disorder. I mean, that, that, that there is there's an amount of depression in, in the state of Alaska that comes in this long, dark winter. And that for many of us, this is, this is a hard season, literal season of our lives. But the cool thing is, I want to tell you this morning about this little, this little flower. It's called the crocus flower, and it serves as a powerful metaphor as we talk about Jesus this morning. And because I'm such a green thumb, I had to go here. Um, the crocus flower is the first flower that blooms in, in the, in the uh, winter. And even as early as January, this thing can pop out of the snow and start to present itself. In fact, this is a, this is a picture taken in Girdwood. Um, in the course of early January. And the cool thing about these flowers is they, they bloom in spite of the cold, in spite of the dark, in, in spite of the desolation where everything else is lifeless, right? Everything else is desolate. And here comes this little flower that pokes its head up out of the snow and is this vibrant yellow and purple defiance toward everything that's dead. And it's telling us that, man, spring is coming, Right? That there is, there's going to be change. There, there's, there's hope around the corner. And I think that this morning, man, in the, on the darkest day of the lives of the followers of Jesus, their master is dead. He's in a tomb. And the darkest day of their life is going to be a crocus flower that pops up out of the grave and tells them that everything's going to be all right. In a world of suffering, in a world of death, 
in a world where sin runs rampant, there is hope. We did Christmas in July, and now we're going to do Easter in October, right? It's very confusing, but, but stay with me here. So Matthew 28, we're just going to watch. It's a very simple account as opposed to some of the other accounts. There's, there's more going on in those, but it's a simple story of Jesus rising from the dead. And what I want us to do is I want us to walk through the sensory experiences that the disciples had when they interacted with Jesus and the women at the tomb. We're going to see today more motions, okay? They thought he was dead. Everybody point to your head. They thought he was dead. They heard he was alive. They saw him personally, and they touched him. You can tickle your neighbor. And they were told to tell the world. They, they, they thought he was dead, heard he was alive, saw him and touched him personally, and they told the world that Jesus was alive. We're going to walk through this. I guess that's all. Is that all the senses? What are we missing? Taste. They ate fish together. All right, there you go. First of all, they thought he was dead. So here's the scene. Jesus is dead. He's crucified. He's buried. And remember, where was he buried? This is a picture of, of it's a recreation, but it's very likely that it looks something like this. And he was not laid in, in just, just a, a ditch with a bunch of other dead bodies. He was put in a rich man's tomb. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? He was a rich man who was a follower of Jesus. And he came to Pilate and he said, I want to do my Savior honor by putting him in a tomb that he deserves. And so he put him in his tomb, but that also fulfilled the prophecy. This wasn't just Joseph's idea. This was God's call back from Isaiah when he said he was buried like a criminal, even though he was innocent, and he was put in a rich man's grave. Jesus was buried in his tomb just like it had been prophesied. And it says in Matthew 21, or Matthew 28, verse 1, excuse me. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, so what day is that? That's Sunday, right? Sabbath was Saturday, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So it's the first, it's the dawn of the first day of the week. So this is Sunday morning, three days after he had died. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So here we have um, a couple of Marys. Other, the other gospels say there was actually maybe more women at the scene, like Salome. There's a lot of women, a lot of Marys. Okay, have you ever noticed that? Trying to wade through all the Marys in the New Testament. There's a reason for that. And th- this is a New Testament version of an Old Testament name that was Miriam. Now, who's Miriam? Was well, the sister of Moses, right? So th- there's a lot of honor for Moses and his family and the sister. So a lot of, like, you know, today, if you're, you're raised in the church, you got a lot of Noah's and, you know, Mary's and Paul's and not a lot of Bartholomew's. He doesn't get a lot of love. I've never understood that. But here's Mary, a very common name, okay? Kind of like today, the Aidens, okay? You know all the Aidens out there? Second most popular name last year. I, I substitute at K Beach, and there is Aidens and Bradens and Cadens and Jadens and Haydens and it's just like I was in a first grade class and there was like 14 Cadens. I'm like I didn't even know that was a name let alone there's 14 of you right I was like what the now I'm not uh, that's a total tangent uh I'm not uh not Hayden on Aidens you see what I see what I did there I'll be here all week um the other disciples where are they there's the, the women at the tomb what about all the macho men right what about the guys that said, Jesus, I'll die with you. I will go into war. I will go to hell and back with you. But he said, no, 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 no. When the shepherd gets stricken, the sheep are going to scatter. And that's exactly what they did. John is the only disciple that we have an account of him being at the cross when he's standing there with Jesus' mother. All these other men who had claimed all this bold following of Jesus, they're gone. And the only people you see there are the women. The women are at the cross, and they're the first ones to come to the tomb, including Mary, who is the mother of the sons of thunder. Okay? Where are those sons of thunder? You could say they bolted. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> George, go to sleep. Um, <laughs> thanks, Mom. Um, 
so, so here we have Sons of Thunder. They're, they're nowhere to be found with their mom. You don't, want to be, you don't want to be outdone by your mom, right? You do not want your mother to be braver than you. But here are these women by Jesus' side. Now, why did they come into the tomb? Matthew 16, it says that they came to bring spices to Jesus. They came to, to anoint his body, other passages say. And, and, and some of this was just an honor. But see, remember, Jesus died on Friday night. And so they had to kind of rush him to be buried because you can't do work on the Sabbath, right? Friday night at sundown marks the Sabbath. So over that period of time, they couldn't use spices, buy spices, bring these spices to Jesus' body. So Sunday morning is the first time they have to get these spices and to bring them to their Lord. Now these spices were used for a couple of things. They were there to honor Jesus' body, but they also helped in the embalming process. And you remember like, and they don't have the Peninsula Memorial Chapel close by. And these bodies would decay much more rapidly than, because of the technology we have today. Remember Lazarus, four days later, what did it say in the KJV? He stinketh, right? So these bodies, the, the, the women bring these spices to honor and to help the decaying process of their Lord. They're showing grief. Their master is dead. They're showing the love that they have for him in this expression as they bring the spices. And imagine being his followers on this day, coming to the tomb. They don't know the end of the story like we do. They don't have the hope. And you think about it, for them, it's winter, right? I mean, it is, it is this desolate place where, where three years they follow Jesus and he's healing everybody and he's offering all this hope. I'm the light of the world and you come follow me and I'm going to show you this kingdom that you've never seen before. And now they're wondering, maybe all this mocking that they were saying is true, that he could save others, but he couldn't save himself, that he could heal the world, but he couldn't take himself off of that cross. They say, maybe there's no hope left in this world, and maybe Jesus is gone, and maybe it's another Messiah coming. And they go back to Roman oppression, day in and day out, and no hope. They come to the tomb. And man, isn't it easy to look around our world today and think, man, where is the hope? And we see nothing but oppression. We see sin. It seems like as a culture, we just move more left and left of center. And it's easy to just think, man, all I can do is put my head down and just try to cope. Is this all that there is? Is there any hope? But out of nowhere, out of nowhere, a crocus flower pops its head out of the winter ground and presents itself to the women at the tomb. They thought he was dead, but then they heard that he was alive. Follow this text, and I want you to see the fear that comes out that's kind of present in this this next few verses. It says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, and here is the good news. He's not here. Why? For he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Now, we've got fear everywhere in this passage, right? And you might be thinking, like, and just chill out, ladies, right? Like, it's, it's all good. Jesus is alive. What are you scared of? Sin has is, is, is been defeated. Death has been defeated, right? It's game over. Jesus wins, right? Good guys win. But put yourself in their shoes. This is not a flannel graph Sunday school story. They are there. And you imagine what they saw. The first thing they experienced is this great earthquake. Now, this is a great earthquake. What happens when we experience little baby earthquakes? You remember a year ago? Remember when God shook his little finger and, and, and woke us up here? And there wasn't a lot. Safeway had some things knocking off the shelf. I showed you the horror of what happened at my house. The cocoa packet that fell over. <laughs> right? You remember that? It was, I don't want to talk about it. Right? Too, too soon. 
So here's this little earthquake, right? And I'm laying in my bed at 1.30 in the morning, holding on to my, my covers, going, I'm coming home, Jesus, right? I'm going to die. And, and it was like over in 12 seconds, and we were fine. But here, it says there's this great earthquake. So the first thing they experience is this great earthquake. But then after that, as if that, that was not terrifying enough, there's this angel. And it says this angel was like lightning. Okay, as Matthew's writing this, he goes, I don't even know how to describe it to you, but it's like lightning. Now, we're in Alaska, so we don't know lightning, right? We don't experience lightning. But this angel that can only be described like lightning, this is not precious moments, porcelain little doll angel. That's why when these angels come, they say, the first thing they always say is, do not be afraid. Because their appearance is terrifying. In fact, the Roman soldiers, who are no little pansies, these Roman soldiers are kind of like the equivalent of today, like the Navy SEALs. These were the best of the best of the best. And they would probably stay in this tomb, not just two of them. They usually came in like units of 16. There could have been as many as, as 48 of these guys hanging around at the tomb. Remember, they do not want Jesus to be seen as resurrected. So they're guarding the tomb. And it says when these soldiers, when these Navy SEALs see this angel, what happens? For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. You see those fainting goats on YouTube? They don't know exactly what he meant when he said like dead men, but very likely scholars say they probably stroked out. They probably were in a coma from the fear of what they saw with these angels. And so the women are experiencing this, the earthquake, the lightning-like angel, these guards just falling over like dead men. And then this angel speaks, and what does he tell them? He says, Jesus is not dead. He's alive. What? Or can you imagine trying to absorb all of this? This is an emotional roller coaster. And it's easy for us, again, in kind of hindsight, Monday morning quarterbacking it. They say, well, of course he's alive, fools. He told you over and over again that he would die, and then three days later he'd be rose again. But I imagine that if I'm in their shoes or I'm in their sandals, that I'm just as confused as they are. That I'm just as terrified as, as they are. And this angel, he speaks, he says, your Savior is alive. And then the first thing he tells them to do, verse 7, go quickly. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So here's the good news. Jesus is alive. Now I want you to go tell the disciples. Remember, this is the women. These are the women here. And go tell the disciples. Go tell his followers to meet him up in Galilee. Now what's going on there? Well, remember, Jesus actually already said that to them. This has been the game plan from before he even died. Back to Matthew 26. They're out of the upper room and they're moving toward the Mount of Olives. And this is what Jesus says to them. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And this is what happened. Jesus got arrested and they all ran. They all ran. And then he says, but after I'm raised up, he knows in the moment, as he's about to face the firing squad, he goes, I'm going I'm I'm to make it through this. My God's going to pull me through this. I'm going to be raised up. And then what we're going to do? We're going to meet up in Galilee. We're going to have a huddle in Galilee. Okay, this is what you're going to do. So this is the plan. The, the angel's just reiterating what Jesus had already told them before he ever died. Go to Galilee. Trust his word. Trust his word. So they go. And it says in verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. And the Greek there would probably be better written terror. With great terror and, what does it say? Great joy. Great joy and ran to tell the disciples. So here are the women running. At first there was just fear, earthquake, angel. But now they've heard this good news. Their Savior is alive. And it's this terror mixed with joy. Now what does that look like? How can you be terrified and joyful at the same time? Well, have you ever ridden a roller coaster? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, like, you're on a roller coaster. Now tell me, when does my face go from terror to joy? 
It's a thin line, right? Like, it's a subtle transition from terror to joy. And so these women, they're trying to absorb everything they've heard. Jesus is dead. It's darkness. Our Savior, the light of the world has been snuffed out. But then there's, there's, there's this earthquake and this lightning-like angel that tells us, no, he's alive. Now I want you to go and tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. And their heads are spinning. They're running back to tell this message and trying to remember this message as they're running. Like, tell the, tell the Galilee to meet him in disciple. No, 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 tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And as they're on their way, as they're processing what they heard, they have a personal run-in with their Savior. So they heard he was alive, but then they saw and touched him personally. Look at verse 8. Behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. So as they're on the path to go tell the disciples, here's Jesus. He appears to them. And what he says, he says, greetings. Now, your translation may say, hail. This is a common, it was like the most common greeting at the time. Now, not for us. Like when you came in today, Mary Jean was not like, hail, right? (laughs) Greetings, earthlings, right? What's a common trans, well, we would say, hello. So here's Jesus. The first time anyone's seen him risen, and what does he say? What's up, guys? hello. And I imagine, he's got to love this moment. Like, he's texting God. Did you see the look on their faces? (laughs) LOL. Cry, laugh, face emoji, right? Hello. They're already on this emotional roller coaster, and now they run into the man himself? And as I I tried to put myself in their shoes here, the, the, the verse that came to my mind was what Job said after God had thundered his reply to him. And all Job could say, I had heard of you, by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. <laughs> like, I, we heard you were alive, Jesus, but now we've seen you. We've seen you face to face. We've encountered the risen Lord. And what's their reaction? What do they do? The, their response is the only appropriate response that I could imagine. When Jesus says, greetings, it says they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They fell down, face forward, and they grasped Jesus' feet. They humbled themselves. Where's their position? At his feet. They humble themselves at the feet of their risen king, and they worship him. Their winter, their winter has just sprung a crocus flower, and they've gone from terror to joy to hope. Everything's going to be different. And the last thing Jesus tells them after they've seen him is he was, they were told to go tell the world So he meets up at Galilee, like they had planned, the rendezvous. Now the 11 disciples, where's Judas? Judas has hung himself, he was the traitor. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And then you know these words, famous words, Jesus, last words. He came and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Or more succinctly put in Mark, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. What's the good news? Jesus is alive. He's not dead anymore. And we go all the way back to the beginning of the story. And what's going on in the garden? Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit. This relationship with God is fractured. And God steps in and he says, I've got a plan. 
I'm going to send a deliverer who's going to crush the head of Satan and sin and death. He's going to buy you back. He's going to bring you back to me. And here Jesus is saying, the good news is that I've come and I've crushed sin and I've crushed death and I've crushed Satan and I'm alive and there is hope. The crocus flower is sprung to life. And now go make disciples of all nations, all people groups. And this is an appropriate time to transition. Next week, we're going to have our missions month for the month of November. And what, what Jesus is saying here, he's continuing that plan that was back at, to, to remember when he told the father of Israel, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and through the, your nation, I'm going to bless all nations, all peoples. This was the plan since day one. Now he says, go tell everybody. This is not just for Israel. This is for every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Go tell them. And so as we launch Missions Month tomorrow, next week, we're going to look at the book of Acts, and we're going to see how the gospel of the risen Jesus spreads throughout the whole world. That these scared apostles become the rock the church is built on. But this morning, I want to tell you the good news of what the risen Jesus means for us. I'm going to conclude here with seven things. Now, don't worry. I know that sounds like a lot. I will go through them quickly. We got reservations at Odie's. Well, Odie's is closed on Sundays. So chill out and sit there. I don't know. I'm arguing with you in my head. I don't know what I'm doing. So th- seven things it proves. Number one, proves the Bible is true. The resurrection of our Savior proves the Bible is true. Remember Peter's first sermon? After Jesus rises from the dead, he's got all these people in Jerusalem. And, and the first thing he tells them is this resurrection of Jesus. And he goes, this was actually predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus called his shot. And he, and he quotes Psalm 16, which is really Jesus speaking. Check this out. It says, for you, this is God, Jesus talking to God. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. No, no, no. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence. You're going to be bring me back to your right hand, Father, and the pleasure of living with you forever. See, Jesus' resurrection proves the Bible is true because the entire Old Testament is pointing toward this. Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, the entire picture, all of the joy, all of their hopes of Israel are pinned on Jesus rising again. If he dies for the world and doesn't raise again, there's nothing. In fact, that takes us to our second point, that it proves that Jesus is God's son. How do we know Jesus is who he claimed to be? He made some audacious claims, right? I'm the son of God. I'm the king of the universe. I am the light of the world. I'm the chosen one from before the dawn of time that came to deliver not just Israel, but the whole world. So you got to be able to back that up. In Romans 1, Paul says, how did he prove that he was who he said he was, that he was God's son? Romans 1.4, he was shown to be the Son of God when? When he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, Christ the Messiah, our Lord. He is God. He is the uh, Messiah, and it's proven because he raised from the dead. What did he say? I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to pick it back up. And when he picked it back up, he showed that he had that authority that he claimed that he had. So you want proof that Jesus is who he said he was? Look no further than the resurrection. You want to prove that my faith is wrong? You want to prove that everything I've staked my life on, everything that my faith hinges on, everything I believe in, that that you want to prove that it's not a sham? You want to prove that it is a sham? Show me the body of Jesus of Nazareth. But if you can't show me his dead body, then I'm going to keep on dancing, right? Jesus is alive. And I don't know if baby circles are still in or not. I don't care because I'm going to celebrate, right? My Jesus is alive, amen? And listen, religions all over the world are led by dead leaders or leaders who will one day die, right? 
Buddha, he dead, right? Him and his big belly, six feet under. Muhammad, prophet of Islam, he dead. Confucius, died in 479 BC. But our Jesus, he died right around 33 BC. But then three days later, he rose again. And my faith is the only faith on this planet that follows a risen, resurrected, living leader. Our master is alive. And the, and the resurrection proves that. Number three, it proves that salvation is complete. When does a prisoner get released from his sentence? Right? When does he get let go? When is he freed? After he's served his time, right? Like once the appropriate amount of payment has been paid, you were in jail for 33 years, and, and that was your sentence. So now that you've paid your price, you can be free. You're let go. And Jesus, being released from the chains of death, is proof that the payment, not for his sins, but for our sins, has been paid. That what he said on the cross, it is finished. It's been paid in full. The perfect lamb has been found. The proof that, that, accept, that, 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 that God accepted Jesus' work is in the resurrection. See, if you've ever doubted, man, are my sins paid for? Because Jesus enough, you look no further than what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. But put the positive spin on that. If Christ has been raised, then your faith is the most valuable thing on planet Earth. And you are not guilty of your sins. And if you've ever wondered, man, have I outsinned the grace of God? Have I done too much? Could he have forgiven me too? If we want any proof, any validation that I haven't outsinned Jesus' work, look no further than the resurrected Jesus, than the empty tomb. Jesus is alive and I am forgiven. It's the proof of purchase. The resurrection is the receipt that proves that God accepted Jesus' work on my behalf. It proves salvation is complete. Number four, it proves there's a future resurrection. John 14, when he was in the upper room with the disciples, he said these words to him. He said, soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. And listen to me. Just as surely as Jesus rose from the dead, everybody who has picked up their cross and followed him, all of our loved ones who have died before us, all of us who will die before he comes back, and all those who make it and don't die before he comes back will be raised from the dead as well to new bodies and eternal life with Jesus. First Corinthians, he said, in fact, in fact, this is true. If Christ has been raised from the dead, or Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first of a great harvest, or maybe your translation says first fruits of all who have died. Jesus is the first. He's the crocus flower. But many of us, we're not, we were raised after him. We're the forget-me-nots, right? Jesus will not forget us. And we too will be raised to a new life just like our crocus flower rose. Proves a future resurrection, number five. It proves a future judgment. Now here's the sober part. It's a sober reality. Paul said in Acts 17, there's a judgment coming. And who gets to be that judge? says in verse 31, he set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Raising Jesus proved that Jesus is the one at all times. Not me, not you, no world leader. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one who decides the, the dividing line. He says, you are a sheep and you are a goat. This is wheat, this is chaff. And what's the dividing line? It's not how much money we've made. It's not how many people we've impressed. Now how hard we've tried to please God in our own strength. 
The dividing line between heaven and hell, life and death, is what did you do with the person of the risen Savior? And he's the one that decides that. I don't decide your eternity. I don't decide if you trusted Jesus as your Savior. He's the judge. And this is why the burden is on us to tell the world about this crocus flower, to go into the dark and shine our light. This is the most important job we have as believers. Because the judgment is coming. And there is hope, but only for those who believe. Future judgment, number six, it proves that we have strength for today. And this is so beautiful. A lot of times we think about the resurrection, meaning, yeah, we'll die, and on the other side of the grave, we'll live forever with Jesus. We'll get new bodies. And I'm not minimizing that. That's amazing. That is hope. But the risen Jesus is not just the hope for tomorrow. He is strength for today. Look at what Romans chapter 6 says. We've got to catch this. It says, for we died, past tense, past tense, we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, when? Now. Not just, to, not just a time to come, but today, October 29th, 2017, now we also may live new lives. That the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the same power that lives in us. And for those of us who have trusted Jesus as our Savior, that old nature, that old life, it's been crucified with Jesus. It's, it's gone. There's no more power over us. And now we've been raised to a new life. What life? Jesus' life. The resurrection power of Jesus, his very life, lives in us. And today, we can say no to sin. Sin is no longer our master. We can experience freedom from the chains of sin today. We can experience that new life, that new relationship with God and with other people in Christ today. There is resurrection strength for the believer today. And the last thing it proves, strength for today, and we do have a bright hope for tomorrow. We want to talk about hope. Look at what First Peter has to say. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus. It is by his great mercy, not because I was good enough, because I tried hard, not because I got good grades on my spiritual report card, his great mercy, that we have been born again. Why? Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we may live with this great expectation. So we've got this expectation of what's to come, of what the next chapters of our lives, of the history of this world are going to look like. We have this expectation, and what is it? That we have a priceless inheritance inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. It says no one can touch this. No one can rob you of this. You imagine having like a rich uncle that dies and he's a billionaire. And you're like, this is going to be amazing. I can't wait for him to go. No. Uh, and you get this money from their uncle. I mean, this, this is an inheritance. That money that you get, one day it'll be spent. One day it'll rot. One day it'll go away. He says the inheritance that's coming for us will never decay, will never rot, will never go away. And so then through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. He says, this is the hope we have. This is what we have to look forward to. Remember my senior year in high school, we won the state tournament championship. I will show this picture as much as I possibly can. I weave it into as many illustrations. I'm living in my former glories, just like Uncle Rico, right? I am, uh, yeah, I got my Letterman jacket that's still too tight. <laughs> In that state championship game, I remember how stressful it was. Down by seven and a half. Double overtime. I know, it was scary. And we're living and dying by every bucket, right? 
every foul call, every bad foul call, right? Every step of the way. It was a terrifying game to play in. Why? Because we didn't know how it was going to end. I don't know if we're going to win or we're going to lose. It's either going to be the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, but I have no idea how it's going to turn out. Now, you imagine if someone had come to me and said, Justin, I'm going to show you tomorrow's headline. You guys win. 44-41. And yeah, you're going to be down seven and a half. And yeah, this guy's going to tweak his ankle. And yeah, it's going to go into double overtime. But don't worry. You win the game. Imagine how different that game would have been if I already knew the end. Well, brothers and sisters, we know the end. We've seen the last page. We know how this game of life, how it all plays out. And sin and death lose. Satan loses. Jesus wins, and he comes back for his bride, and we live with him for eternity. We know how the game ends. Now listen, in the meantime, there will be suffering. There will be loss. There will be pain. We're going to sin and be sinned against in unimaginable ways. We're going to be down seven at the half. It's going to feel like double overtime. We're going to have some injuries. But we know how the game ends. And when you lose hope, remember, it's an empty tomb and a crocus flower rose from the cold, dark winter. And our hope, our hope is not just wishing for the best. Man, I hope it all turns out well. I I hope there's life on the other side of the grave. My hope is just as certain as the tomb is empty. That's where I put my hope. In Isaiah 35, he talked about this, this crocus flower, but on the other end, we got winter. In the Middle East, it was desert. And you remember when the people of Israel got exiled? They got kicked out of their land because of their sin. They're in Assyria right now. And as they're in Assyria, in bondage, in oppression, Isaiah speaks to them. God speaks through Isaiah, and he tells them this. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. There's a day to come to look forward to. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. There's a crocus flower that's going to bloom. You've got hope. You've got something to look forward to. And then look at what he promises the people. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. I'm going to buy my people back. I'm going to bring them back to the land that they've been promised. They will, will enter Jerusalem with singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. He says, listen, I know you're in a strange land right now. I know you're oppressed. I know it looks like hell. I know it looks like there's no hope. But trust me, soon I will bring you home. And this is the same hope that you and I have today. Jesus is our crocus flower. And in a dark world, we see the empty tomb. We see the risen Savior. And we know that there's hope. Can you and I be crocus flowers in a dark world? To tell the world, I know it looks dim. I know it looks dark. I know it looks, it looks rough. But there is hope in our risen Savior. If the ushers would come forward, all right, I know that's a weird transition. Um, I want to pray with us. And after I pray, we're going to continue in worship of this Savior, of this risen Jesus. As the band comes back up and, and, and takes us through that time. But as we offer these, these gifts to our God, We offer them not from a place of hopelessness, but a place of hope. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much that Jesus is alive, that our Savior is is not dead, 
he is living, that the one we follow has championed over sin and death, and now he reigns. He's sitting at your right hand, interceding for us, and one day he's coming back. He's going to snatch us up as his bride, and we're going to live with him forever. And in the meantime, Lord, give us the grace to trust you more. It's hard when our, when our sight tells us how, how sinful we are. Our sight tells us how, how bad our surroundings are, the state of our politics, or whatever it be. We've experienced loss. We've experienced suffering. It can be hard, both internal and external problems. Father, may we take our eyes off our circumstances and put them on Jesus, the risen Savior, and believe that there's strength for today, that, that his resurrection life is inside of us today, that we don't have to sin today, that we can love as you've called us to love, not because we have the ability, but because Jesus is in us, that we have strength for today, and to believe that we have a bright hope for tomorrow, that Jesus is coming back, that we know how the game ends, down by seven and a half, double overtime, but Jesus prevails, and that we may go into this dark world of winter as crocus flowers of hope, Tell the world that Jesus is alive. And if they place their trust in him, they can know life and they can know victory over sin and shame and death and be reconnected to worship of our God. May you open our hearts. May you open our mouths to tell the world that Jesus is alive. It's in his risen name we pray. Amen.